Section 5 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Militia. Of especial interest to Americans is the music of the North American Indians. It is difficult to characterize this music by a few general remarks, as there are, or rather were, over fifty different tribes, each of which had its own peculiar music. The whole mass of tunes presented many interesting varieties, both in structure and rhythm. Music among the Indians did not occupy the place of an art. Song was not indulged in for the sake of giving pleasure, and music can hardly be said to have been developed among them in response to a love of melody for its own sake. There can be no doubt that among the Africans and other semi-barbarous peoples, music, however rude, gives a genuine aesthetic pleasure, even though of a primitive sort. But among the Indians, music was too closely bound up with ritual to have much of an independent existence as music. Song was the inevitable accompaniment of every important act or ceremony in tribal or individual life. Each prayer, incantation, tribal or individual ceremony had its own appropriate song, and it was considered unlawful to sing this particular song except in accompaniment of this particular prayer or ceremony. Certain songs, having to do with ceremonies which occurred at certain seasons of the year, could only be heard at these seasons. The song, as a song, had no existence apart from the ceremony. It is true that gambling songs, and songs of labour, such as corn-grinding songs, are to be found among many of the tribes, but these are apparently variations of the general rule, and that they were indulged in for the sake of aesthetic pleasure is very doubtful. Between certain tribes on the Pacific coast there were indeed singing contests, but it is learned on investigation that these contests were largely trials of memory, their object being to ascertain who could remember accurately the greatest number of songs. In general, it may be said that the melodies of the northern tribes, such as the Iroquois, Algonquin, or Kwakiutl, are much ruder and present more rugged characteristics than those of the southern tribes, such as the Zunis or Navajos. These southern Indian melodies are much more graceful. This difference is well shown by the two following melodies, the first is from Dakota, the second from New Mexico. Dakota Melody Hopi Melody
A peculiarity of the Dakota melody is the downward leap of a fourth to be seen in the second measure. The use of the interval of the fourth as a prominent melodic interval is quite a general characteristic of Indian music, and is noticeable in the music of many different tribes. The following scalp dance from Minnesota illustrates this. Again, it may be said that the larger number of Indian tunes have a falling melodic inflection. True to the most primitive characteristic of savage music, that of beginning on a high note and descending gradually to the bottom of the voice, the melodic course of the great majority of Indian tunes is ever downward. It is not an unusual thing for an Indian tune to end on a tone an octave and a half lower than that on which it began. The following dance song, also from Minnesota, illustrates this. Among the Indians, the drum is naturally the instrument most frequently in use. There are but few songs or ceremonies in which it does not play a vital part. It is almost always used to accompany a singer, apparently to mark the time, but curiously enough, the rhythm of the drum is sometimes at variance with the rhythm of the song. The rhythmic values of the vocal melody on the one hand, and the different rhythm of its drum accompaniment on the other, are so persistently independent that the effect is very evidently intentional. Rattles are sometimes used instead of the drum, as is the case in the snake dances of the Hopis, already referred to. The only other musical instrument deserving the name, which is in widespread use, is the so-called flute. This flute, pierced with six holes and blown through the end, not across the side, is used as a courting or love-making instrument on which to serenade the loved one. The fragments of melody which are played upon it are largely extempore, and are understood by the Indian maiden as a declaration of love. The following is a sample of one of these flute love calls. With the exception of the flute and its love calls, instrumental music can be said not to exist among the Indians. With them, music is almost entirely song, and as the most important element of their songs is not primarily their strictly musical value, this paucity of their instrumental music is only what might be expected. It is interesting to note, however, that practically in the only case in which music occurs divorced from ritual in Indian life, it appears as an expression of the love emotion. 
This is significant when considered in connection with Darwin's theory of the origin of music, cited above. Even though the music of the Indians is almost entirely a byproduct of ritual, it would be wrong to conclude that, as music, it is lacking in character. While many of their ritualistic songs are merely a sort of recitative in which the melody is much distorted and drawn out to accommodate the words, others are quite perfect in their form and general melodic organisation and of a truly distinctive and forceful character, as, for instance, the following Song of the Wolf, which was collected by Dr. Boas among the Kwakiutl tribe in the northwest. Nothing like a scientific study of Indian music was attempted until 1880. In that year, Theodore Baker lived a while on the Seneca Reservation in the state of New York and collected and studied such Indian melodies as he could there obtain. The results of his studies were embodied in a pamphlet and published under the title Über die Musik der Nordamerikanischen Wilden. This little book first drew the attention of ethnologists and others to the hitherto unsuspected existence of a large and important native musical culture among the Indians. Before 1880, investigators of the Indian and his native culture had entirely ignored his music, considering it to be mere barbaric noise not worthy of attention. Even Schoolcraft, in his great work published in 1854, said, Indian music is very simple, it consists of about four notes. Since the publication of Baker's essay, however, the subject has not lacked investigators. The application by Professor Fuchs of Harvard University of the phonograph to the accurate recording of Indian melody has been used with brilliant success by investigators. Through the efforts of such workers as Alice C. Fletcher, Frederick R. Burton, Franz Boas, James Mooney, Natalie Curtis, Francis Densmore and others, thousands of Indian songs of many different kinds have been collected, written down and published, forming a library of American primitive music of great completeness and inestimable value to students on the subject. In collecting and studying the music of primitive peoples, great difficulty is experienced in obtaining trustworthy data. Almost all the savage and semi-barbarous peoples of the world at the present day have been in contact more or less with civilized man for so long that they have acquired by imitation many of his manners, customs and ideas. Thus the savage's original development has been overlaid as it were with a varnish of culture which is foreign, not native to him. The first civilized men to come in contact with a savage tribe have not as a rule been intent upon observing their manners and customs, nor upon recording their primitive music or folklore. These first men have usually come as discoverers and conquerors. They have been followed by missionaries, who in their zeal to perpetuate the doctrines of Christianity, have been ever anxious to divert their minds of the people from their ancient traditions, by substituting for them stories from Bible history. Their ancient songs and barbarous-sounding incantations, however interesting to the ethnologist, 
have been in most cases tabooed by the missionaries as impious, who substituted for them the hymns of the church. This thing has happened in Australia, New Zealand, Polynesia, Africa, and particularly in America. The Indian tribes have been so inoculated with musical ideas, hymns, and scraps of folk song that it is frequently only with great difficulty that the character of their own primitive music can be determined. A collection of the music of the Hopi tribe, who dwell in seven naturally fortified hill towns in the desert of Arizona, reveals to a large extent Spanish influence. Many of their melodies have the grace and movement of Spanish dances. This is quite explicable, however, when it is remembered that the Spanish held dominion over these towns from 1580 to 1680. Spanish influence is also apparent in the music of the aboriginal inhabitants of the Philippine Islands, and in the traditional music of the Mexicans and Peruvians. Brasseur de Bourbourg has translated into French from the Quiche, the former Mayan tongue, an ancient manuscript called Rabenal Achi. It is an immense dramatic ballet, accompanied by music and danced and acted by hundreds of performers. But when we come to examine this music, it is only to find that it has an unmistakably Spanish character. From the fascinating histories of Francis Parkman, it is plainly seen with what zeal the early Jesuit missionaries strove to Christianize the Canadian tribes of Indians. At the present day, it is not an unusual thing to find turns of melody, and even hold tunes, which resemble to a large extent certain hymns of the Catholic Church. Frederick R. Burton, who has investigated the Ojibwe's music, says that, while on one of his trips in the vicinity of Lake Huron, he fell in with a particularly isolated tribe of these Indians. He asked them to sing one of their old choruses. The Indians complied and sang a garbled version of Old Hundred. The innate love of music among the African blacks has been remarked. Their imitative powers are likewise well known. We are told by Theophilus Hahn of an instance in which not only the music but the words of certain Dutch hymns the latter being entirely unintelligible to the negroes, were remembered and repeated almost exactly after being heard but once by them. Noirot, after calling attention to the great resemblance existing between certain African airs and English jig tunes or French vaudeville songs, says, It is necessary, however, to make an exception of these slow and monotonous phrases which are sung by the young women to accompany dancing and of the airs played on the bambara flute. In these we again perceive the savage aspect of this music, the chant inspired by the patriarchal life of the blacks. A specimen of one of these airs is here given. The first collectors of the music of the various savage tribes naturally were obliged to write it down in ordinary musical notation. 
but savages in their primitive melodies like certain animals in their quasi-musical cries continually use intervals of less than a semitone in writing down these primitive melodies in our notation it has been necessary to disregard these small intervals and to treat them as accidental happenings a mere out of tuneness as it were the note written down has always been assumed to represent the tone which the primitive singer was trying unsuccessfully to produce but instances of these variations from the tones of the orthodox chromatic scale finally became so numerous as to give rise to the belief that savages consciously made use of quarter tones in their songs this belief has had many learned and eloquent defenders among whom may be mentioned james a davis and benjamin ives gilman the truth of this theory is however very doubtful the conscious use of the quarter tones or intervals smaller than those in use in european music would indicate a much more refined perception of tones and their relations a much more delicate musical ear than is possessed by civilized europeans and this is hardly to be reasonably expected of savages moreover during recent years the writer has examined some hundreds of indian songs as recorded by the phonograph many repetitions of single songs have been examined by him as a general rule the repetitions fail to agree in length rhythm or accuracy of intonation frequently they agree only in general contour any single tone is liable to vary up or down at least a quarter of a tone and in some cases the variation is as much as a full tone now if the indians consciously use quarter tones in their songs one would expect to find a regular recurrence of these small intervals at the same place in each subsequent repetition of the song but as such is very far from being the case one is led to conclude that while these fractional intervals do really occur their occurrence is much more the result of accident than of conscious intention these conclusions in regard to north american indian music apply we believe to the music of all savages the characteristics of that which is primitive are undoubted strength directness of expression and consequent effectiveness but this elemental strength is coupled with crudity inaccuracy and an apparent lawlessness or impatience of restraint no matter how charming how effective or how interesting many of these strains of primitive music may seem to us from an ethnological point of view it is apparent that the mind of man has not yet grasped and moulded his tonal material primitive music does not show the effect of thought it is merely the wild and wayward expression of emotion it was when the rudimentary successions of tones known to primitive man were gathered up and scientifically arranged in definite and unalterable scales that our modern art of music began and at this point our survey of primitive music properly ends here is a specimen of andamanese music noted by m v portman End of section 5. End of chapter 1.